Welcome to Stuttgart Harvest Church. As we continue this series, we're in part two of a four-week series called Small Things, Big Difference. And let me kind of catch you up as to what we were talking about last week. Last week, I kind of started off by telling you a little bit about my life and just talking about the, the amount of time and thoughts and energy that I invest into work and the amount of time, thoughts, and energy I invest into my free time, into family time, and yes, even into sleep time. And then I said, but you know, there's still another area of my life. It's that walk with Jesus, my life with Christ. And here's what so often happens for many of us that kind of gets tagged on to the end. My life with Jesus, I do every, I focus on all these other things and then I just kind of tag on some time for Jesus. That's the, that's our tendency so often. And I said, what does that reveal about us? I, I mean, what does that say to us is really important in our life? Then we had this comment because so often we would say, yes, I believe Jesus is the most important. But we had this comment that said, to believe and not to do is not to really believe. To believe something but then not do anything about it is to not really believe it. Jesus kind of has some things to say about that. And we reminded you that he put it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. So he said, so why? Like, remind me now, why? Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? And he says it kind of in another way. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says, if you don't love your father or mother more than you love me, I mean, I'm sorry, if you do love your father and mother more than you love me, he said, you're not worthy of being mine. And he expounds on that. If you love your son or daughter more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow, there's something to do there. Follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. He says it another way in verse 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, Paul was a follower of Jesus, an apostle who was a church planter. He wrote most of the New Testament. And in all of Paul's writings, we reminded you last week, in all of his writings, there is no salvation that does not include a transformed life. In all of his writings, there's no such thing as a salvation that does not include a transformed, changed life. You know, during the past four weeks, I've had a few conversations with, with a new friend who is a Wiccan, which is a witch. Now, they don't like the term witch. They prefer the term pagan. This, this Wiccan which was pagan, was married to a warlock. And she is absolutely committed to what she believes. To, and she believes it to a point that it is making, uh, it is permeating her, her discussions, her conversations. It's permeating her thoughts. It's permeating her actions and her behavior, her thinking 
And then I was thinking about that, how strange it is to encounter somebody who is sold out to that way of thinking to the point that this belief system is permeating their whole life. And then I thought about so many people who call themselves Christians, but they are not sold out nor transformed or changed by Jesus. And according to Paul, there's no salvation that does not include a life permeated by Jesus, transformed, changed by Jesus. I just found that contrast very, very interesting. You know, according to Paul, following Jesus means daily being transformed, just a little bit, every day, transformed, changed by Jesus. It's not Christianity, it's not this label that we put on and say, oh yes, I'm one of those. Instead, it implies action. Being a Christ follower implies that you're doing something, that you're following. Not just here or there, or not just every once in a while on Sunday morning. It requires following. It says, it describes you following day by day. It's not a label for your life. It is a way of life. Now, last week we promised you that if you will do some small things, God is going to create a big difference in your life. And so we started not by telling you some small things to do, but we started by describing to you what this big difference can look like. And we said for Paul, it can be described in this word, in this phrase, to live is Christ. That's Paul's phrase, to live. He said, for me, to live is Christ. Now that says a lot. Last week our bottom line said this. We encouraged you this. Live the life of your future with Christ. In the present, right now. Live that life of your future relationship with Jesus. That one day eternal, forever, never ending relationship with Jesus. Live that life right now. In the present, today. Don't wait until you're in heaven. Live that life with Jesus every day, dependent on him, every day worshiping him, every day loving him, that life. Live it in the present right now. So how do we get to this? If that's what it looks like, that big difference in your life is one day living that future with Jesus right now in the present every day. How do we get there? What small steps can we take? And today and two more weeks, we're going to give you some small steps that will make a big difference in your life. So let's see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us today from his word as he was writing through Paul as this letter was going to these people who lived in this uh, colony of Rome called Philippi. Let's look at some small things that will make a big difference. So today we're in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 3. Paul right off the bat says, listen guys, don't be selfish. He gives us this, this thing. Here's a small thing for you. Don't be selfish. 
then he says, because basically he didn't say this yet, but here's what he's implying, that all of our sinful problems in our lives relate to us being selfish. Just think about your life for a moment. If you had some trouble in the past month, if you had some trouble with sin, something that was not part of God's plan that you chose to do, think about, say, or be, if you had some problems, chances are the root of that was something selfish, something you wanted, something you put in front of God, you put in front of relationships, you put in front of other people, something got out of whack, and it usually revolved around selfishness. He said, don't be selfish. Then he expounds on that a little further. Now, we're going to be looking at some things today. We're going to just kind of crank down on these thoughts that Paul is giving us, and we're going to go pretty cranky with it. We're going to crank down pretty, pretty hard. And so Paul is continuing to give us a little closer look, a little closer look, a little closer look. So here's the next closer look. He said, don't be selfish. He cranks down a little bit more. He says, don't try to impress others. In other words, don't overvalue yourself above others. He, he said, don't overvalue what other people think of you. Don't make yourself bigger than you really are. Don't make yourself more important at the expense of other people. Don't go around blessing yourself. He said, that's all empty glory, meaningless. And now Paul takes that same thought of don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. And he says it in a little bit of a different way. Here's how he says it. He says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And what he's, he's not saying to beat yourself down into the dirt. No, he's saying lift other people up out of the dirt and above yourself. Lift them up. Be a people lifter. Don't be lifting yourself up. Lift other people up. That, that's what he's saying. And this was strange to the people that he was telling this to. This was clearly at this time a Christian thought. And they were not used to thinking like this. They lived in a Greco-Roman world, this colony of Rome. And in their colony, they saw, in the Roman Empire, they saw humility. They saw uh, this kind of teaching as a character flaw. They saw it as a shortcoming. They saw it as a weakness. Paul is saying, here's true humility for you. This is what it is. It's not a character flaw. It's something to try to move toward in your life. He said it is the created, you, the creature, me, the creature, bowing low, our heart and our attitude, bowing it low before the creator. And that's not all. And then trusting that creator, being dependent upon that creator, not self-dependent, not dependent in me, not placing my dependence upon someone else, but my dependence and my trust going to my creator. Not looking out for me first. Bowing low before my creator and trusting him, being dependent upon him. Now verse 4, he continues. 
He says, don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have, listen to this, he describes this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now here's where he really, this is our focus for the day. Paul says, all of this can be described another way. You and I, you need the attitude that Jesus has. It's like he's saying, okay, all these things I just described, let me explain it to you a better way. Have the attitude of Christ, simply that. Have his attitude. Have the attitude of Jesus. He said Jesus did the opposite of being selfish. He did the opposite of trying to impress others. He did the opposite of making himself bigger and larger and more important. He did all the opposite of that. Have that attitude is what Paul is saying. He said, that's what we need to do. And now he cranks down a little bit more and describes this attitude that Jesus has. Verse 6, though he was God. Let me pause there. Let's talk about that phrase for a minute. Though Jesus, though he was God. Paul is saying from the beginning of time, from before time, Jesus was there and he was God. Jesus did not suddenly appear when he was born from the virgin. And we celebrate that at Christmas, right? That's not when Jesus began. Paul is saying Jesus has been around before time existed. Jesus was God. He was there. Interesting. He didn't just begin when he put on the flesh of man. Though he was God, he did not think of equality. Now he's going to crank this down some more. Don't let me lose you on this. Follow me real tight here. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Equality with God. Something to grasp. Something to demand. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is God. But he did not say, you must treat me as God. You must worship me as God. When he came, he did not say those things. He did not demand his equality. He is equal with God because he is God. But he did not demand to be treated as God. Interesting. He did not cling to that did not grasp that, did not force that. Very interesting. This is so unlike what these people who lived in this Roman colony were used to. They were used to worshiping gods who were power hungry, grasping at authority, grasping at self-importance. That's what they were used to. And Paul is saying, listen, Jesus is God. He wasn't like that. He's not like these gods that other Romans are worshiping. He's nothing like that. Nothing like that. Verse 7, so he cranks down a little bit more and gives us a better explanation. Verse 7, instead, he says, instead of clinging to this power of God, instead of demanding to be treated like God, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. 
Now contrast that with this phrase, he emptied himself. Now what, God, what Paul is not saying here, he's not saying he emptied himself of God, that he, he stopped being God. No, he was still completely God. You know what he's saying here? When he gave up his divine privileges, he gave up the perks, the privileges of being God. He gave up those things. He didn't stop being God. Rather, he just gave up the privileges. When he put on this limited flesh where he could stub his toe, God can't stub his toe, but when he became man, he sure could. He put on the flesh of man and gave up his privileges, the perks of being God. And I have trouble understanding that. So listen to this illustration to help us understand what it was like for God to give up his divine perks, his privileges, his prestige. Listen to what this might be like. As with any illustration, if you take them too far, they completely break down and mean nothing. So just kind of take this lightly for what it's worth. Imagine if God were to look at you and say to you personally, I need you, I want you to do something for me, something big, something huge. I have a mission for you, a plan for you. I need you to accomplish something. I want you to do it. Imagine he were to say that to you. And then he says, look over there, see that planet? That planet, it is an important, valuable planet to me, not because of what it is, but because of who is on it. It is a planet of precious, precious, precious earthworms. We'll just call them planet worms because this is earth. Worms, a planet of worms, and they are precious to me. And we're like, okay. I mean, they may not be precious to you, but he says, they're precious to me. And I have something I need you to do. I need you to leave the luxury and the brilliance and the, the, the wonderful things that you have here on earth. I mean, you get to drive fast cars, you get to ride bicycles, or you get to walk some form of transportation. It's great. You have that. You get to go to work and spend money and save money and do things and go to a nice restaurant. You have all these wonderful things that you can do, but I need you to leave that here, and I want you to go there for me. Oh, yeah, and as you go there, I'm, um, I'm going to need you to leave this man flesh behind, and I'm going to need you to become an earthworm over there. That's what I need you to do. To leave behind the luxuries that you have and this flesh, and I need you to become an earthworm for me over there to accomplish this important thing I need you to accomplish. Oh, yes. And before I forget, as part of this plan, I need you to die a horrible, painful death over there. May or may not involve a fish hook. I can't say, but it is going to be horrible and painful, but don't worry because you're not going to be dead forever. I'm going to bring you back to life. Okay. But that's, you're going to have to be a worm to do it. Oh yeah. Well, uh, this should be the last thing. Um, 
And if you say yes to this, then you're also going to remain an earthworm forever. You're, you're not going to get your flesh back. Now think with me for just a moment. Jesus, in order to do what had to be done, Jesus left the privileges, the divine privileges that God has, the perks of being God. He left those behind and put on the flesh of man. And guess what? The Bible tells us he still has on the flesh of man. And he will forever. Jesus, though he is God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He gave up his divine privileges. And in doing so, not just putting on the flesh of man, but he died on the cross. And that shows us God's true character his outlandish lavish expression of love it was fully manifested when he died on the cross that love that drove jesus to the cross and this phrase think about this phrase though he was god he did not think equality with god as something to cling to Contrast that picture of Jesus with the picture of Adam, the first man. Adam who blew it as we blow it. But think with us the difference. Jesus, the love that drove him to the cross, the love that says, I'm not going to demand my rights as God with Adam. The Bible tells us Adam, who was created in God's image, Jesus wasn't just created, Jesus is God, is the image of God, is God. Adam was just created in the image of God. And Jesus, who is God, did not demand to be treated like God. Adam, who is just in the image of God, demanded equality with God as something to cling to, to seize, to grasp. Christ? No. Christ disdained such grasping at power and importance. Adam, he tried to be like God. Christ was God, is God, but in fact he chose to become a man. He did not empty himself of being God. He didn't become less God. He simply emptied himself and poured himself out for the world. And so Paul cranks down on this thought just a little bit more. He says, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
Jesus Christ entered into our history, the history of man, that God himself created, the history of man. He did not enter as the king. He did not enter as a Lord to be worshipped, as the supreme authority. That's not how he arrived on the scene. The Bible said he showed up as a slave, a person without any advantages, with no rights, with no privileges, but he was a servant all. That's how he showed up. In becoming a man, Jesus did not stop being God. Rather, he was God living out a truly human life. Let me say it another way. In Christ Jesus, God is showing us his true nature. He's showing us what it means to be equal with God. It means this, to pour himself out for the sake of other people by taking on the role of a slave. That's the attitude of Christ that Paul is talking about. Jesus not only reveals his character, the character of God to us, but he also reveals what it means for you and for me to be created in God's image. Because it means that we, if we're going to be his likeness, bear his image, then we're going to have his mindset and we're going to have his attitude you want to talk about being, having salvation and being transformed and changed, we will begin to have his attitude. It means taking on the role of a slave for the sake of other people. This is the small thing that leads to a big, big difference. This morning, we are encouraging you, all of us, to say this, I'm choosing the attitude of Christ first, which makes me last. I'm choosing the attitude of Christ first, which makes me last. Jesus takes this picture of emptying himself, and he makes it a little bit more clear as Paul cranks down on this here. He says, when he, Jesus, when he appeared in human form, now verse 8, he humbled himself in obedience to God. And he died a criminal's death on the cross. We tend to just kind of pass by that because we understand, yes, Jesus died on the cross for us. But think about this from the perspective of somebody in the very first century. Paul writing this letter to people in the Roman culture, the Romans who took crucifixion, which was invented by the Persians, and took it to a whole new perfected level of torture and death. He's writing to them. He's saying, here we have your creator and my creator who died at the hands of his creation. His creation turned into his enemies. 
Now for the Philippians, the people in this Roman colony of Philippi, for them to hear this, it's scandalous. This is like a divine scandal all over the front page of the newspaper. Because the cross was reserved for slaves and it was reserved for insurrectionists. It was not a good thing. And God here is equating his death with something scandalous like the cross. There was nobody in Philippi, the colony of Philippi, this Roman colony, nobody who was a Christian, who was a Christ follower, nobody used the symbol of the cross as a symbol for their faith. I'm not making uh, I'm not making any commentary on that today and how we use the cross today. I am not making a comment. That's not the purpose of that statement. I'm just telling you the people in Philippi, their view of the cross was something horrendous and something horrible, and it was scandalous to think that God Himself died on something so scandalous. There were no gold crosses. There were no necklaces with crosses. There were no tattoos with crosses. It was a contradiction in human wisdom to think that God, who is creator of all and all-powerful, the supreme authority, would allow himself to die on the cross at the hands of the authority of Caesar who claimed he was God. And yet God allowed himself to be killed under that authority of someone who claimed to be God. That was scandalous. Jesus died as a criminal of the state at the hands of one of Caesar who claimed to be God, one of his rulers. It was scandalous that that God would even appear in human form and leave his privileges of heaven to be here. Scandalous. It was scandalous. And in this moment, Paul is inviting these Christ-following citizens of Philippi. He's inviting them to be part of of this divine scandal. Saying that the God who chose this scandalous death in this scandalous way is inviting you to suffer for His sake as well. And now Paul turns and takes this conversation and from the attitude of Christ, and now directly addresses these people of Philippi, these Christ followers, and now in doing so, addresses you and I as well. And here's what he says in verse 12. Dear friends, he says, you have always followed my instructions. Very unlike what we heard Jesus say when he said, why do you call me Lord when you don't do any of this? Paul is saying, listen, you people in Philippi, you have done this. You've always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important to keep doing it. 
In other words, he's saying, I see in your life that you are beginning to develop this attitude of Christ, this small thing that makes a huge, big difference. I'm seeing that in your life. It all revolves around obedience. You saying, I'm choosing to have the attitude of Christ first, which makes me last. And then he says, you have been doing that. I've been seeing that. Now he follows it up. He says, now, work hard. Some translations say, work out your salvation. We get confused when we hear that because we think, whoa, wait, what is Paul saying? Is he saying we're supposed to figure out the salvation thing? Because if he's saying we have to figure it out, I, I don't understand it. And I don't know what to do. If he's saying we have to figure this out, I'm not sure what to do. That's not what he's saying. Thankfully, that's not what he's saying at all. This is not a passage that says, here is how you're saved. Or this is what you have to do to be saved. That's, he's talking to people who are already believers. Christ followers means that they're saved. They're already saved. He's saying, work hard to show the results of what you already have been given. To show the results. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. The picture he's giving us is a picture that says there's something to do here, not so that you can be saved, because God is giving you that salvation. If you'll just submit to him, he's giving it to you. He's saying, I want you to work it out, not figure it out, not to do something to make it happen. No, 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 no. I want you to think, think of this like like fitness and exercise. And I, you know, hardly, I, obviously I'm, a, I'm an expert at fitness. So let me help you understand what he's saying. Let me put it this way. What I'm told about fitness, you don't work out to get muscle. You've already got it. It's there. I mean, you were, you were born with it. You have muscle. You don't work out to get muscle. You don't work out to get salvation. Now, you're not born with salvation. You have to submit. But once you get it, he's not saying work it out to get salvation. He's saying work it out to make it strong. When you work out your muscle, it's already there. You're just making it strong. You're developing it. You're, you're making it uh, healthy. You're making it bigger. You're making it stronger. That's what Paul is saying. Work out. Exercise your salvation. Do something with your salvation. Work it out. Exercise it. Make it stronger. Develop it. Make it grow. Make it healthy. Make it strong. Work hard. Work out. Work to show the results. Not to get salvation. To show the results of the fact that God has given you salvation. In other words, what have we said? Work hard to show your life transformed and changed. That's what Paul is saying. Thankfully, he's not saying work hard to be saved. No, not at all. Never does Paul say that. 
work out to make it grow. What God has given you freely to make it grow. Now he describes, he cranks down some more. Boy, this is getting deep. He cranks down more. He says to you now, here's how it happens. Verse 13. For God is working in you. See, God is doing work inside of you. You just have a willingness. God is working in you, giving you the desire. He gives you the very desire. You don't even have to go. The fact that you walked into this movie theater today to listen to what God has to say in his word to you and to to worship God through singing and, and expression... The very fact that you did that, you know why you did that? Not because we're so special, but because God has given you the desire to pursue and follow him. And you express that in the willingness to come and be a part. And Now God is saying, we're not just talking about worship experience here. We're talking about your life every day, all day long, moment by moment. For God is working in you, not just on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. God is working in you every day, moment by moment, giving you the desire. Don't you have the desire? So often we do, and we just don't act on it. We're not willing to take it anywhere. We're too busy living our life, but God is giving you the desire, waiting on you to act on it. He gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. And in this case today, what is the small step? I'm choosing the attitude of Christ first which makes me last. God is the one who empowers you and strengthens you. You just say, yes, God, I'll do it. I'll be a part. It's obedience, an attitude that says, I am willing, and God sends you out. God is not going to do this for you. What God does for you, that's salvation. You can't do that. He does that for you. But then he says, now go work it out and exercise it. Make it strong. Make your salvation strong. You go do that. He just gives you the desire. And now it's up to you to go exercise it. He's not going to do it for you. He sends you out to exercise your salvation. He will empower you, give you the desire, give you what you need to do that. But it's up to you to go and do it. Doing of your salvation, not for your salvation. It's because of it. And you're exercising it. And that brings about a radical transformation in your life. The Christ follower is not the person who says, okay, I have nothing left to do. God, I guess you caught me. I'm backed into a corner. I have no way out. And begrudgingly we say, okay, I'll follow you. Well, there goes my life. Dadgummit. It's the person who willingly bows low and submits and says, I have tried it my way and failed. You, you've done it for me. I just have to give myself to you freely and willingly the way Jesus went to the cross freely and willingly. That's how we pour ourselves out for Jesus. And it is God's Spirit who works inside of you 
so much so that you begin to have new attitudes, the desire to have new attitudes, the desire to have new behaviors, a new way of life. That's Jesus, God, His Spirit working inside of you. You just have to be willing then to go and live that salvation and exercise it. He kind of ends, moves towards a conclusion in verse 16 with this thought. He says, hold firmly to the word of life. You know, we try to hold firmly to our life. He says, no, 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 no. Don't hold firmly to your importance. Don't hold firmly to, to, to what you think is great about your life. Don't hold firmly to self importance, patting yourself on the back, you being spent. Don't hold firmly to any of that. Hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly. Hold firmly to Jesus. If you're going to cling to anything, grasp for anything. Don't grasp for importance. Don't grasp for selfishness. Grasp for Jesus. And This morning we're going to encourage you in this to say this in your heart and in your life. I'm choosing the attitude of Christ first, which makes me last. I'm choosing the attitude of Christ first, which makes me last. And here's the step we're asking you to take this week to help you on that journey of that small step, that small thing. This week, will you simply read Philippians chapter 2, one, two paragraphs at a time. Just in order, from the beginning to just one or two paragraphs, then the next day read the next one or two paragraphs. But don't just read them. Read one or two paragraphs and then pause for that day and say, Today, God, today, what do you, as you have just read from your word, from these two paragraphs, what do you want from me today? Or what do you want in me today from those two paragraphs we said the same thing about chapter one last week will you do this with chapter two this week god in these two paragraphs today what do you want from me or what do you want in me and i believe this will lead you toward the small thing that says i'm choosing the attitude of christ first which makes me last if you will do this with us listen to kind of how paul brings some closure to this thought in verse 17 listen to some of these words he uses he says but i will rejoice rejoice even if i lose my life you get that contrast even if everything goes wrong for me and i lose my life i will still rejoice that's transformation. If I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, how did Jesus, what did he do with his life? He pour, poured it out. And Paul is saying, even if I have to follow you, Jesus, to the cross and pour out my life. 
said for you, Philippians, just like your faithful service to God, your transformed life, living out your salvation everywhere you go, not just on Sundays at 11, every day, all day long, living out your faithful service, your transformation, that is you pouring out your life as an offering to God. And then he said, and I want all of you to share that joy. He calls that suffering. I want you to share that joy. That is a transformed life. Yes, you should rejoice. And I will share your joy. I will share your suffering. Pouring out our life. He said, that's what it is. I'm choosing the attitude of Christ first, which makes me last. Will you join us this week? One paragraph, two paragraphs, doesn't matter, at a time. A couple paragraphs a day and simply ask God today, what do you want from me? What you have said in these paragraphs, God, what do you want from me? Or what do you want in me? And then work out, do something, exercise your salvation with that. Whatever he says for you to do. Small things, big, big difference. Let's pray. God, Paul said that we can rejoice even if we lose our lives by pouring them out as an offering to you. God, Paul looked at their lives and said, even our serving you, following you, being transformed and changed and living that salvation among other people around us, that God, that is an offering to you. And he asked that we would all share in that joy, that we would all rejoice in that opportunity to pour our lives out, to love you and love the people around us, to live that saved, changed, transformed life. So that as we work out our salvation, as we exercise our salvation, we are growing stronger, being transformed. Thank you that you give us the desire and give us the empowerment and give us what we need to do that. We just have to be willing to go and do it. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray as we offer this song to you, your name, who came as a servant, but you left as a king and are coming back as a king. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.